0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Claire Bodkin and Sara Alavian. Health and health care interrelate on a number of different levels, with the range of institutions and practices encompassed by policing, courts, prisons, and the rest of the carceral state. On one level, the carceral state is an integral part of systemic harms to health. It is increasingly well understood how experience of things like poverty and racism, organized into people's lives through social relations like capitalism, white supremacy, and settler colonialism, can have hugely detrimental impacts on the health of certain groups of people. As social movements have made so clear over the last year, policing in prisons are an important part of maintaining that status quo. As well, social movements have also been very clear about the ways in which policing is itself a source of direct harm, particularly to black and indigenous people, but also to people who are marginalized and criminalized in a lot of different ways. On another level, and in the context of those bigger picture realities, there are the many different ways that the carceral system interacts with the medical system. For instance, sometimes seeking health care can also result in police attention. There are situations where police seek to get information about patients from healthcare providers, and people who experience illness or injury while they're under arrest, detained, or imprisoned might have little choice but to receive health care while a police or corrections officer is present, including when an officer is the source of the injuries. And finally, medicine itself can be carceral, and medical workers can act in everyday ways that support carceral systems. The most obvious examples of the former are the aspects of the psychiatric system that involve incarceration, though there are others, and the latter can include things like how medical staff relate to police and how they relate to people in custody. Claire Bodkin and Sara Alavion are both physicians in Hamilton, Ontario. Bodkin is a resident in family medicine as well as a community organizer, and Alavion is a resident in emergency medicine. They're part of an ad hoc group of health workers from different parts of Canada with an interest in prison abolitionist politics, who are producing a zine called Caring for the Detained. In their experience, the only mention of policing in their formal medical education was a discussion of basic guidelines for maintaining patient confidentiality in the face of inappropriate inquiries from the police. Other than that, policing, prisons, and the carceral state, their deep interconnection with settler colonialism and white supremacy, and the implications of all of that for the health and healthcare of their patients were not discussed. Though they're well aware of the bigger picture issues and the need to build transformative alternatives, the zine itself is focused on giving practical advice specifically related to the encounter between a healthcare provider and patient and its aftermath. The goal is to be an educational tool for medical learners and people who are already practicing. And it aims to help them increase confidentiality, safety, and dignity, and reduce harms for patients who, for instance, are detained, or accompanied by a police or corrections officer, or who are otherwise dealing with the criminal legal system. The team has produced a preliminary draft of the zine. At present, they're getting feedback on the draft from people who have received healthcare in context relevant to the zine in community or carceral settings. Earlier, they had a successful crowdfunding campaign to raise money both to produce physical copies of the zine when the time comes, but also to pay those with lived experience for their labor and expertise. The group has also been hard at work figuring out distribution. The zine itself and its website will launch on February 1st, 2021, and in the meantime, you can watch for updates on their Instagram account, at CaringForTheDetained. I speak with Bodkin and Alavian about what it can mean to think about prison abolition in the context of healthcare, and about the caring for the detained zine.
1: My name's Claire Bodkin. I'm a resident doctor training in family medicine in Hamilton, Ontario, and a community organizer. From a young age, I've always been interested in understanding issues of justice. My politicization has happened in a few different ways. One is being a queer person and coming out as queer and being a part of a queer community that is politicized because who has power and how power is exercised affects the lives of queer people and communities. And then through a lot of the relationships that I have as part of my life and my queer community, a specific politicization around policing and police abolition. I have a dear friend, Keisha Williams, who really introduced me to the idea of prison abolition. And for me, that was really a starting point to understand the role that policing and prisons play in oppressing people and maintaining state power and maintaining white supremacy and also was living in Toronto when Black Lives Matter Toronto was established, and learned a lot from their organizing around police abolition and prison abolition. And then once you become a healthcare provider and you see the ways in which healthcare really colludes with policing, but also has a chance to resist policing and resist carceral approaches and carceral violence, then you start to think about okay, well, who else is thinking about this, and what might we do about it.
2: And I am Sara Lavian. I am also a resident doctor. I'm training in emergency medicine here in Hamilton, Ontario. I immigrated to Canada in 2010 and studied in my undergrad global health and equity studies and felt really grateful that during that time, I had a lot of opportunities to meet people who were interested in grassroots community organizing, thinking about community empowerment, and in particular, ways in which individuals can ask higher administrative structures and powers to be accountable towards their citizens. In transitioning into medical school and this profession, and in particular emergency medicine, it became quite clear to me that doctors have a particular position of power and privilege where they both get to care for individual patients, but also have the capacity to advocate for larger changes and structural changes. And it became something that was obvious to me, particularly in the emergency department, that caring for patients who are detained is something that's not very well done. And I had something to say about it. We are discussing a zine called Caring for the Detained. It's a zine that Claire and myself and a couple other people had thought to put together as a way to help healthcare providers, either medical learners or people who are already finished with their training, to think a little bit more deeply about how to minimize the harms of patients who are detained or accompanied by corrections officers or police officers and be able to best provide care for these patients in a dignified way.
0: What did you get taught about the health and healthcare implications of the criminal legal system and its relationship with white supremacy and settler colonialism in the context of your formal medical education?
1: We don't learn much about prisons, policing, carceral systems in formal medical education. There is a little bit of training that happens around confidentiality laws and who we can share information with and who we can't share information with. And received some formal training on not disclosing anybody's healthcare information to a police officer or someone else that's a representative of the so-called criminal justice system without, you know, a subpoena or some sort of formal direction. However, really never in my formal training was policing as a potential source of harm to patients ever considered or addressed. And there's the formal curriculum, but also what we call the hidden curriculum or things that happen more informally and sometimes are at odds with the formal curriculum. And a thing that I've witnessed, especially I would say in training in emergency rooms, is a sense of camaraderie or, you know, we're both professionals that exists between healthcare workers and policing and corrections. And so I think that also sends a really powerful message to trainees about who we're on the air quotes same team as and who we are not. Any sort of conversations or training I've had around problematizing that or around just considering that there may be harm caused to patients by policing and by prisons has really come either through other students who have organized things or, you know, meeting patients and getting to know them and seeing them and hearing their stories of how they were injured or assaulted or abused by people in positions of power. And then the more subtle thing, which I think is even more pervasive, which is that somebody may not feel comfortable sharing their entire health history or giving you all the information that you need to provide excellent care if there's a cop in the room that's listening to the conversation and sort of what does it shift in the clinical encounter in the clinical dynamic when there is law enforcement present. So I think most of that learning either happens informally, happens through other students or happens kind of on the job as you see what's happening.
2: Clara and I trained in the same place, so my experience is very similar to hers. I will additionally say there was, I want to say, zero training or education around the relationship between policing and criminalization and settler colonialism and white supremacy. That is something that became quite obvious. During medical school and also during residency, that some people who had very particular life experiences had zero understanding of the relationship between those two things, and in particular, how Canadian society is set up in a particular way compared to other folks who were in training with us who either had life experience or had had the opportunity in other careers or other types of education to explore a little bit more these ideas of structural violence of structural racism and positions of privilege and power and so in particular i think the lack of Analytical understanding of these forces at play and how they impact our patients that it's not just the one encounter with a police officer or with the criminal justice system that is damaging, but also what are the forces that brought them into play together? How do policing and criminalization in conjunction with healthcare funnel towards a certain vision of what society should look like and who is included in that vision? And it's, unfortunately, something that's not offered within medical school or formal residency training.
0: So, beyond their broader systemic implications, what, in the context of your respective medical practices, are some of the more immediate ways that you encounter policing and prisons and their impacts?
2: For example, in the emergency department, There's multiple scenarios in which patients would be brought in accompanied by a police officer or a corrections officer. The other possibility is that someone is brought in via another mechanism. So for example, the ambulance, EMS, and police have also responded to the scene because there is a question of criminality in terms of the scenario that brought them in. The police also respond to that scene and then also come to the hospital after The patient has been brought in and we'll have some inquiries around the patient's status and so we communicate with them from that perspective and that's another situation where there's a lot of gray zone
1: as to how much you can divulge to police officers and what their role is because i'm a family doctor i see patients more in outpatient clinical settings or out in the community One challenge that I have, and I know a lot of my colleagues have, is that if there's somebody who is imminently a threat of harm to themselves or others, particularly threat to themselves, so somebody who's quite actively suicidal, our really only options for intervention are one, to form someone, which is to involuntarily detain them. So that in and of itself is a carceral tactic that physicians are able to do and in fact expected to do or legally required to do that. And then once you form someone, one of the only ways to ensure they make it to the hospital for assessment is by having the police transport them there. So that's one space where we interact with police. I also have a number of patients who use drugs and who have police respond when there's an overdose call. So if someone calls 911 about an overdose, then police respond to the scene. And even though there is the Good Samaritan Act, which provides some protection, it doesn't necessarily provide the blanket protection that we would hope it would. And so sometimes my patients will end up getting detained or picked up on outstanding charges as a result of police responding to an overdose call. And then I'll also see patients who have chronic pain as a result of injuries they sustained from police. And then when I'm out in the community seeing patients, sometimes there'll be police also out in the community. This is more for my patients who are street involved. I also have done some of my training in prisons. So then obviously that's a very different setting where I'm actually inside a prison delivering care with correctional officers around and within that institution.
0: How did the Caring for the Detained zine project originate?
1: The idea actually came from Baj, one of our friends and colleagues. Baj and I met working on the College of Family Physicians of Canada Prison Health Member Interest Group Committee. And then ended up going on to co-organize with a number of other people the Liberation Health Convergence that happened in Toronto in the spring of 2019. And then he had been thinking about this and had actually just encountered a number of really challenging clinical scenarios where patient care and dignity and autonomy was really compromised by the interactions and the role of police in that care. So he had approached me about what I was seeing in my own clinical context. And certainly I was seeing similar sorts of issues. And we both had a longstanding interest in prison abolition and police abolition and thinking about ways to turn that into a concrete tool for people working in healthcare and especially for learners. So then from there, we reached out to some different people in our circles to bring on board healthcare workers from different settings and different disciplines, and then lawyers as well to help inform the legal boundaries of what we were exploring so that would have been in late 2019. And then early 2020 is really when we were able to solidify
0: the team. Give listeners a bit of an overview of the kinds of content you've included in the zine.
2: We tried to think about it in a way of, you know, going through the actual patient encounter. So, first, we have a couple of words about who we are, um, what the vision is for the zine, and also tying this back to greater movements of liberation, prison abolition, and decolonialism. Then we start talking about patient interviewing what are some tactics and strategies to help maximize patient confidentiality and safety while doing the interview? We talk about tips when it comes to dealing with a patient who has suffered a harm from a corrections officer or a police officer, how to best document that, what are some strategies to advocate for that patient. And lastly, we talk about aftercare. So thinking about beyond the patient care encounter after they leave you, what are some ways that you can set them up? for maximizing their success in terms of accessing healthcare, making sure that other people will be able to tap in and continue that care for that patient. So we tried to think of it as a structured approach to the entire patient encounter and beyond.
1: I think the other thing that's important to recognize is what's not in the zine. We talked a lot about how there is a need to imagine alternatives and build alternatives that don't involve police at all and work towards that. This is really more of a how do we reduce harm within current healthcare systems, not a and what else do we build as an alternative. And then the other thing we talked about, and we sort of talk about it a little bit in the zine, is that there are lots of ways in which healthcare itself acts in carceral ways. So when I say carceral ways, I mean by like punishing people, detaining people, controlling people. And we need to also do work within healthcare to address that, to dismantle that, to create ways of doing things that don't reproduce that carceral violence. So those are some things that we don't really cover in the zine in a big way.
0: And I understand that in producing the zine, there was you and the other health workers who came together to write it. But you're also working with people who have received health care in circumstances related to the zine, who are making sure the things the zine is saying are sound.
2: It was really important to us that we got feedback from those who had lived experience on how useful the zine was, how accurate it was, and if there was any part of accessing healthcare that had been missed that would be useful to touch upon in the zine. So we took a couple of steps to do that. First, we decided to properly compensate those individuals who would be able to read the zine and give us feedback for their time and for their expertise, and also for the fact that they would be reading about things that related to them on a personal level might remind them of difficult or traumatizing periods in their life and wanted to be thoughtful and careful about that. And in order to properly compensate them, we obviously needed funding. So we put together a GoFundMe, The funding was not just for the compensation of these individuals, but also for being able to print the zine, put it on a website, make it freely accessible to people, et cetera. We were super thankful that people were generous enough and thought that this was important enough to donate to. And once we got that funding on board, we proceeded to the next steps of reaching out to folks.
1: I think we've had five people review it now and we're working towards getting 10 reviews and then we'll create the final first version. Folks have come from Saskatchewan, Ontario and Nova Scotia, and I've had experiences of receiving healthcare in community settings. And I am contrasting community settings with like detention settings. So things like in the emergency department or in a hospital or in a clinic while being detained. So typically accompanied by a correctional officer, a police officer, something like that. The feedback so far has been really helpful just to illuminate some of the gaps that we didn't even see or understand, obviously, as healthcare providers in terms of what can make an encounter less harmful and more positive for patients. So, we're just finishing that review process and then we'll be ready to incorporate all of that feedback into the first version to be released. And then from there, we anticipate that we will get critical feedback. We will get other things to think about. We will get other areas that we want to expand on and that the zine may have a couple of different additions. We have one review happening with somebody who's currently incarcerated, and that's proven a little bit more logistically tricky to actually get the document into the prison and then have the person be able to review it and send it back without it getting stopped by correctional officers, but working our way through that right now as well.
0: And once the zine is ready to release, what are your plans to get it into the hands of healthcare providers and learners?
2: I personally would love to see this zine being used as a tool in any kind of learning environment. So, for example, in medical schools and nursing schools for social work degrees, I would love to see people engaging with this work. It's honestly like very preliminary work. We're not asking huge and difficult questions. They're actually really basic and straightforward things that we're suggesting that people try when engaging with a patient who is detained but I would just like to see it available in such a way where everybody is having more and more conversations about what does this mean for this particular patient population? What does this mean in terms of what they're more vulnerable to share the trauma that they experienced? How can I make this encounter better for them? So ways in which we're hoping to do that. One is creating a website and hosting the zine on the website for free so that people can easily access it. Another possibility is we're hoping to have printed hard copies that we can distribute to clinics and people who reach out to us and would like a hard copy. The one thing that we need to have some more thoughts about is making sure that this gets into the hands of communities who need it. So in particular, people who are policed more, patients who are already incarcerated, people who have been incarcerated and don't have access to the Internet or access to large amounts of resources That's something that is probably going to be the next step to think about how can patients then get their hands on this type of knowledge and know what can they ask for? Like, what should they expect from their care?
1: The other thing that's been interesting in all of this has been the number of people that have reached out, especially like other healthcare workers to say, hey, I heard through the grapevine that you folks are working on this. When is it going to be available? Would love to check it out. Would love to read it. Would love to share it. I think there's a real appetite for this among progressive health workers in so-called Canada and probably beyond.
0: What else would you like to see done in terms of reducing harms from carceral systems in medical contexts at a level beyond the individual practitioner? Like in terms of professional associations, standards of care, rules and regulations, that sort of thing.
1: One thing we don't do in Canada is we don't have any way of tracking police-caused injuries or even fatalities. From a health standpoint, we always talk about how if you don't measure a problem, a health problem or a health outcome, whatever it is, it's really hard to act on it. We don't necessarily need to get any more data to know this is an issue and to act on it. But I do think that for healthcare systems, it would be helpful to have that epidemiologic data that says, okay, this is how much of an issue it is in terms of police-related or police-caused harms and fatalities. This year has been interesting in all of the amazing defund the police organizing that is happening. And I think that more mainstream institutions, whether that is regulatory colleges or licensing bodies, are starting to understand that to say that you want to do anti-racism work and you believe in anti-racism actually does require you to then grapple with anti-colonial work and the harms of settler colonization and anti-police work and the harms of policing and prison. So I think pushing our institutions to recognize that policing and prisons are a part of settler colonization, are a part of racism, are a part of white supremacy, and are a part of what is causing harms to people is an important thing. And I think that there is more space, thanks to, you know, defend the police organizers meeting this conversation nationally, to be able to have those conversations.
2: What I would like to see is some dedicated thought and planning around how to actually confront the fact that policing and criminalization is harmful. So, recognizing that this is an issue and it's a health issue, it's something that creates adverse health outcomes for many of our patients, many of our, in particular, marginalized and racialized patients, and making a dedicated effort to understand that. So, yeah, collecting that health data. There are a lot of very smart people who have already done that work, the theoretical, the conceptual, and the grounded theory work of demonstrating those links between these dangerous and violent forces, and as a profession, taking a look at that and realizing, okay, this is something that exists, is real, and has an impact on our patients, and then also coming to a reckoning with the fact that we participate in it in very insidious ways, and then starting to unravel that, deconstruct it, and come up with some alternatives for it. You know, thinking about, for example, when it comes to mental health, patients who look a certain way, you know, Black men, people who are schizophrenic, people who use drugs, they will be overly policed, they will be aggressively treated for their mental health issues and not always in a productive way and are usually taken out of their communities, they're segregated from their communities, they're subjected to even more trauma and violence. And thinking about ways of how to address that, how to change that and how to create more nourishing and structures that allow people to survive and hopefully thrive within the society. So I think that there's a lot of ways in which healthcare can step up to start to really create some radical alternatives for people to have better access to healthcare, to experience their health in beautiful ways that are free from policing, that are free from the specter of like surveillance and violence. There's a multitude of ways to engage in that, and each person can find kind of their niche and think about what can they contribute to. What is that small way that they can start to think about healthcare as like a an
1: actual radical abolitionist practice? I just want to add something about process. This was a group of people who found each other through friendships and other relationships that we had with each other. We saw a problem, and we wanted to do something about it. None of us are experts. Well, maybe I shouldn't speak for other people. I'm not an expert. I'm certainly not an expert on prison abolition or what that looks like in healthcare. But I think I would just encourage anybody listening, if this resonates with you, to think about, like, what can I do with the people that I know or could easily get to know to put prison abolition and police abolition into some practical, tangible project or thing that I'm doing in my realm, in my sphere? That's really important that, like, anyone can do this work and take it up in so many different ways. And there's nothing really special about who we are or what we've done. Other than that, we did it. And I know other people are doing it. But, you know, for anybody listening, I would hope that they could, if they have an idea or a hope or a problem they're seeing, they could take that and run with
0: it. You have been listening to my interview with physicians Claire Bodkin and Sarah Alavian about prison abolition politics and healthcare, and about the caring for the detained zine. The zine and its website launch on February 1st, 2021, and in the meantime, you can follow Caring for the Detained on Instagram. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.